Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. So good to see everybody this morning. I've never really quite figured out why the middle section seems to empty out first. And when I get up here, you know, I have to kind of look both directions at the same time. Oh, well. Such as it is. Anyway, uh, let's stand for the reading of the word and for prayer, and then we'll get into the message. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your word which is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, to show us how to walk with you through this dark world. Lord, I desperately need your help this morning to bring your word to your people. Lord, I can stand here and talk, but I can't make any difference in anybody's lives. Only you can do that. Please have your word do what's intended to. You said it would not return to you void, but it will accomplish what you please, and it will prosper in the thing for which you have sent it. We want to honor you this morning, giving full attention to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you may be seated. What an amazing book, Ephesians. It has been described as pure music, truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And what an amazing chapter, chapter 2. And what a difference there is in our condition described in the first verse and where we find ourselves in Paul's discourse now. And the pivotal verse is verse 4, which reads, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I like almost any verse that begins with, But God, because it means things are going to go from bad to good. And from here on, things just keep getting better in this chapter. Because from here on, Paul is elaborating on, what, on how things keep getting better. First, in verse 5, he said that he made us alive together with Christ. 
We were dead in trespasses and sin, but he made us alive together. Then in verse 6, as he raised us up together, made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us this grand finale in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And he not only tells us what he did, but he tells us why he did it. And he did it because he loved us. And what is the result of his love? Being made alive, being raised up to sit in heavenly places with Jesus. And then he will show his exceeding riches in his grace toward us. Wow. Now, let's see what else he's done. Look at verse 14. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. It was he... Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross, who offered himself to pay the debt for our sins and to unite his people with himself. It was he who did the work to make peace between God and ourselves. Now, why does it say he is our peace rather than he brought us peace or he made peace or through him peace is possible? It's because there is no higher authority. Jesus isn't just the vessel through which peace came. He is the source of peace, the peace that he's talking about in these verses. And in this, this sense, the words he is and the phrase I am that God pronounced to uh, Moses in the burning bush have the same meaning. The only difference is changing the pronoun from first person to second person. The I am essentially means self-existing. There is nothing higher, no one higher. He came from himself. His life is in himself. Jesus expressed the same idea several times. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And my favorite, the one that blew the socks off the Pharisees was, before Abraham was, I am. And the, uh, in the epistles, the uh, disciples expressed you know, the same thing. Uh, Paul in Colossians says, he is before all things. He didn't say he was before all things. He is before all things. So, you know, in John 8:58, where he said, before Abraham was, I am, and Paul, in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, is stating the fact that Jesus is God. Because to say that he is expresses the omnitemporality of God, the omnitemporality of Jesus. And nobody is omnitemporal, or that is beyond time, except God. Colossians 1.18 says he is the head of the body. 
And John said in John, First uh, uh, John two and two, He is the propitiation. And in John two twenty nine, He is righteousness. One of my favorite preachers, John Stott, said, "The word He in this verse is highly emphatic. It is He, Jesus Christ, who shed His blood on the cross, and who offered Himself." For his people, so that today he can be united to them. It is he who, by what he did once, now offers peace peace with God and peace with one another. He is our peace. And peace is something that we desperately need, something we desperately long for, what everybody searches for, what the world searches for. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Romans, says, The lack of peace is our chief problem. The chief message of the gospel is that God has made peace with us by the blood of Christ's cross. Now, what is this middle wall of separation that Jesus has broken down? And why is it separating? Now, Paul explains this in verse 15 that it is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This wall, emblematic of the written commandments, separated Israel from the rest of the world. In effect, there were two people, Israel, the people of God, and everyone else. Of course, it is a fact that God did choose Israel from out of the world, from among all the nations, to be his own special people, separated from everybody else, and naturally gave them special benefits. In Romans 3, Paul wrote, What advantage then has, it, has the Jew, or what profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Then in Romans 9, he says, of the Jews, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the, promise, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternal blessed God. Amen. You know, God's idea was that Israel would be the means by which the rest of the nations would know him. And it would be the means by which they could come to him. Israel's idea of being chosen was that they would keep this blessing to themselves. You know, almost all Christian teachers want to say that the actual law, the law of God itself, is this middle wall of separation. And I think the text does seem to back that up. But interestingly enough, most Messianic Jews, Christian Jews, say that it isn't the actual law because there's nothing in the law that permit, prohibits the Gentiles from coming to God through Israel. But that it is the way that Israel perverted the law to make it something that it was never intended to be that was the dividing uh, dividing wall. You know, the perception fostered by the Jews, particularly the Jews of Jesus' day, was that 
uh, to the rest of the world, we're better than you are because we're God's chosen people. You know, there's nothing that separates two people or two groups of people than for one to say, you know, I'm better than you or we're better than you. Because yeah. automatically a wall goes up right then. You know, God chose Israel for a specific purpose, and that was to be a blessing to all the people on the earth, the nation through whom the Messiah would come and fulfill God's promise to Abraham, the promise he made in Genesis 26 and 4, that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in Galatians uh, 3, Paul verifies that God was talking uh, about Jesus and making this promise to Abraham, where he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. But Jesus came into the world to do more than just remove the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. You see, there was another wall, a wall that much more impenetrable, a wall that no man could remove, and that's the dividing wall between God and man. Verse 16 says, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Before we could be reconciled to one another, we first had to be reconciled to God. The problem of sin that created this wall had to be dealt with. And Jesus did that in his own body by having it nailed to the cross. But, you know, although sin has separated mankind from God, it really isn't sin that Paul is talking about here. The wall of separation he's talking about is the way that we can come to God to get rid of this sin and to enter into a right relationship with him. And that barrier is the law. And it's a barrier because none of us can keep it. None of us can keep it fully so as to have access to God. The Gentiles couldn't keep it. They basically didn't know what it was even. The Jews couldn't keep it, even though they had it. You know, uh, in the first Jerusalem council recorded in the book of Acts, where Paul and, and uh, Barnabas came to Jerusalem to uh, talk to the leaders of the church, you know, about the conversion of the Gentiles, because the Jews were saying, you know, you first have to become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. And to become a Jew, you have to keep the law. Well, you know, the council got together and said, and Peter, you know, stood up and said, you know, men and brothers, brothers, you know, why do we want to put a yoke on these guys that we couldn't carry, that even our fathers couldn't carry? And then he said, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, I think we would probably expect Peter to have said, they can be saved the same way that we were. But he didn't say that. He said, we can be saved the same way that they are. Saying that this means of salvation 
that is through faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the way of salvation you know, for everybody, be he Jew or Gentile. Now, speaking of the law, there's two facets to the law. There's the ceremonial law and the moral law. The ceremonial law is the commands that dictate how Israel was to worship and included such things as circumcision, sacrifices, cleanliness and uncleanliness, uh, dietary laws, social relationships. All of these things pointed to the coming of Jesus and were fulfilled in him. Hebrews 5 points this out. When speaking of the Levitical priesthood and their serving of the law, it says, who served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And in Hebrews 10, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of these things. The law pointed to Christ, but they could not. the law could not save. So we no longer have to worry about keeping the ceremonial law because it pointed to the coming of Jesus. And now that he's here, we really don't need the ceremonial law. We don't need it any more than if we were going up the turnpike to Charleston, we would need a sign that says, Princeton back the other way. We've already been there. Jesus has already come. But you may say, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say uh, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that he didn't come to abolish the law? He came to fulfill it. Isn't what Paul is saying here a discrepancy? No, there are no discrepancies in the Scripture. We just have to look at the context from which the statement is taking. Jesus did fulfill the law in the sense that it pointed to him and he came, and so it's no longer necessary. As I said, in, in the Old Testament, there's two distinct features of the law. The ceremonial law we just talked about and the moral law, which is codified in the Ten Commandments. Did Jesus abolish these two? Do we no longer have to worry about honoring our father and mother? Do we no longer have to abstain from stealing something that we particularly want and don't want to pay for? What about coveting? You know, all these things. These commandments are just as valid for today as they were back then. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it is obvious that Jesus was talking about God's moral law. Now, Jesus didn't abolish them. He fulfilled these commandments by keeping them perfectly for us, they are still a standard for behavior. Acceptance with God is now through faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Be the person a Jew or a Gentile. So to sum it up, Jesus abolished both regulations, both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the commandments of the moral law. Both separate us from God and separated us from each other. You know, we can't miss the way that Paul moved from the negative, that is the separation of Jew and Gentile, and the separation of everybody from God, to the positive, and that is the bringing of everybody together, bringing everybody to him and bringing all of his people together into one new people. 
And the unity does more than just span the Jew-Gentile divide. In other passages in the New Testament, it does away with social and sexual distinctions. Galatians 3.11 and I mean, Colossians 3.11 and Galatians 3.28 say pretty much the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that the facts of human distinctions are remained. Men still remain men. Women still remain women. Jews remain Jews. Gentiles remain Gentiles. General Robert E. Lee, who was the commander of the Confederate Army during the Civil War, was a devout Christian. And it's reported of him that after, after the war in uh, a church in Washington, D.C., that he knelt during a communion service beside a black man. An onlooker later said to him, How could you do such a thing? To which... Robert E. Lee replied, My friend, the ground is level beneath the cross. And one of the outstanding features of the early church was although it was comprised of people from all walks of life and all levels of society, when they were together, they were equals. A wealthy nobleman was no better than a poor tradesman who was no better than a slave. But sadly, you know, that concept has eroded and I don't think the early church would I think the early church would have a hard time recognizing us today um, again from his commentary in Romans James Montgomery Boyce says that within the fellowship of the church the wall that formerly divided Christians are broken down walls of race economic status nationality and educational level but sadly, I remember reading somewhere that the most segregated place in America is church on Sunday morning. We are constantly dividing ourselves again. remember feeling sorry for my brother-in-law's neighbor one time who said that she wanted to go to the Presbyterian church, but her mother wouldn't let her because she said, all of the better people go to the Methodist church. That is a sad commentary on the church today. In his uh, autobiography, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who was a leader of India um, back in the 19th century, wrote that during his student days, he read the Gospels and was seriously considering converting to Christianity because he believed that the teachings of Jesus would be the solution to the caste system of India, which was dividing his people. So one Sunday he decided to attend uh, the services at a nearby Christian church. When he entered the sanctuary, however, the usher refused to seat him, saying, why don't you go and worship with your own people? Gandhi wrote, if Christians have a caste system also I may as well remain a Hindu you know that ushers prejudice 
kept Gandhi from hearing the gospel and possibly converting to Christianity. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What is this, preach, this peace he preached? It was the gospel. The good news that all of God's promises to send us as, us as Savior have been fulfilled and we're no longer dead in trespasses and sins, but we're now sons and daughters of the King and have access to him through the blood of Jesus. You know, in times past, and maybe even in a few remote places of the world today, to approach the king uninvited could mean death. Remember the story of Esther when she needed to approach the king on behalf of her people. She risked death in order to do so. But, you know, we have a distinct privilege. We're able to stand before the king of kings because we have an invitation, a standing invitation that we can come at all times. Hebrews 4 and 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in time of need. You know, I don't care that the world says that all roads lead to God. The Bible says something different. There's only one way, and that way is through Jesus Christ. And it's only through one spirit that we have access to him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Verse 19, Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Here Paul begins summing up uh, his theme for the chapter. He has explained that what Jesus has done to bring near to God his people both the Jews and the Gentiles who were previously far off. Christ has abolished the law of commandments and created a single new people in place of the two, reconciling both to God. The result is that we are no longer foreigners and strangers. We're not visitors without legal rights. Our status has changed dramatically and we now totally belong to the kingdom of our Lord. As someone said, we used to be refugees. Now we have a home. In these verses I just read, Paul illustrates our new position by using three familiar types. And that is God's kingdom, God's family, and God's temple. Now first, we are members of God's kingdom. God's kingdom means that he is king and he is ruling and reigning over us and bestowing on the citizens of his kingdom all the privileges and rights that citizenship implies. 
the kingdom, the citizens of God's kingdom are free and secure. And the words no longer strangers and sojourners, but citizens emphasizes the contrast between the uncertainty of life outside of God's kingdom and the stability of being part of God's kingdom. We really do belong, and we have birth certificates to prove it. Secondly, belonging to God's family. Belonging to a family has privileges that extend beyond those of citizenship. As I said earlier, we have a king, but this king is also our father. A good king will care about and care for his subjects, but a father loves his children, and he will give his life for them. What a blessing to be in such a family and to have such a father. And finally, he compares us to a building, a temple. In Old Testament times, the manifest presence of God dwelt first in the tabernacle, that is the tent when Israel was wandering, and then later in the temple that Solomon built. But within the Holy of Holies and behind the thick curtain that obscured to the world the glory of his presence, and his presence could only be accessed once a year by the high priest. But now he says we are the temple of God, his dwelling place on earth. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? I believe it was back in the 70s. John Fisher wrote a song that said, We are the holy of holies. Don't veil the door. It's a fitting metaphor that Paul likens God's people to his temple. And although the church is a community of people, it can be like a building in many ways. It starts with the foundation. Jesus is building his church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Didn't Jesus say somewhere that he was the foundation? Yes, yeah. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, there is no other foundation that anyone can lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But that's a different metaphor. Besides, it is Jesus who's, who's building his church, and he is building it on the foundation that he laid, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Remember in Matthew uh, 15, Jesus, uh, 16, I'm sorry, Jesus asked his uh, disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter responded by saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus said, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I've often heard the explanation that the rock Jesus was going to build his church on was Peter's confession of who he is. Well, that's maybe partially true, but that's not the whole picture. And the rock certainly isn't Peter himself. Peter, by his own confession, refutes this notion. In uh, 1 Peter 
chapter 2. He says he saw himself not as the foundation, but as one of the stones from which the temple was constructed. Constructed. Not only does Ephesians tell us that the foundation upon which the church is built, the apostles and prophets, but we also find the same thing in Revelation chapter 21, speaking of the New Jerusalem, that the foundation has, well, it has 12 foundations, and on the foundations, the names of the 12 apostles. First Peter was the first one to openly confess that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. But the church, we are told, is being built on the foundation that the apostles and the prophets, uh, their work that they put forth in bringing the gospel message and the particulars of the gospel message that we find in the New Testament. You know, I think the Protestant church has a problem seeing the apostles as being the foundation because of the fact that the Catholic church has singled Peter out as being the main foundation and has elevated the position uh, of the bishop of Rome to that of as the, the pope. Of course, you know, there's no historical evidence that Peter was the first bishop of Rome. Now, secondly, Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is essential to the building. And it's essential also, not just to the building, but also to the foundation. It helps hold the building steady. It sets it straight and keeps it in line. The, a building must have a, its cornerstone for both cohesion and development. So Jesus, as the cornerstone, is indispensable. To the church and its growth and unity. Three times in the Old Testament, three different writers referred to Jesus as the cornerstone. In Psalms 18, 118 and 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act harshly. And then Zechariah 10 and 4. From him comes the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler together. And Jesus quoted the passages from Psalms in regards to himself. And Peter quoted the passage from Psalm and Isaiah as referring to Jesus. Then finally, there are the building blocks of the temple. Verse 23, 21 says, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's us. You, me, the church as a whole each one of us fitting together to make a whole temple of God. Now Peter, go, who goes into some detail regarding the church as a building, describes us as living stones 
coming to Jesus to build a spiritual house. Just as the old, in the Old Testament, the temple in the Holy of Holies was God's dwelling place, we are now God's home on earth. And we have an important role to play in the building of his temple. We are each the Holy of Holies. And our purpose is to let the light shine to a lost and dying world. The glory of God is no longer hid behind a thick curtain. The glory of God is within us. And we are to let our light shine. So we are not to veil the door. Now Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation. The wall that separated God and man and Jew and Gentile. But that's for believers only. That wall still stands if you're not a believer. That wall that separates you from God and you from God's people. So please don't leave here this morning with that wall still standing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for breaking down that wall of separation that kept us from you and kept us from knowing you and kept us from the salvation that you have given us. Thank you for making us your own, your people, your kingdom, your family, your temple. Help us to be what we're supposed to and to let our light shine. Help us not to veil the door, but to let, let your light shine to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.